Well, you might be surprised to learn that one of the oldest surviving pieces of graffiti is about Jesus. It's from around 100 AD, and it mocks the idea of a crucified king, a crucified God. It depicts a man on a cross with the head of a donkey. Below the cross is a man gazing upward, and below that is an inscription. Aleximonus worships his God. In other words, some God, a crucified God. You might as well be worshiping a crucified donkey. It's a joke. Well, you also might be surprised to know that Jesus' own disciples struggled with the idea of a crucified king. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8, if you have a Bible with you today. Mark chapter 8. Through last fall and up to Christmas, we'd been studying the gospel according to Mark each Sunday. And even in our Christmas Eve service, we were there and we came to really what is the center and really the turning point of the book of Mark. On Christmas Eve, we were at the middle of chapter 8. And there the question, who is this man, begins to get answered. Of course, we the readers know from the beginning of the book, this is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But from that point on, there are all kinds of ideas about who this is. The only ones that seem to really know are the demons. People are just mystified, just confused about this one, maybe intrigued. Some are following, but they continually get wrong who this man is. But then, there's some clarity. We saw that in our Christmas Eve service. There's finally some clarity about who this is among those in the story. And then as quickly as there's clarity expressed, everything is shaken up once again as Jesus explains that he's a different kind of Messiah than the one they'd been anticipating than the one everyone had been anticipating. So today, as we return to our study of Mark, now a month later, I'd like to retrace our most recent steps before we move forward. So today we'll look at chapter 8, verse 27, to chapter 9, verse 1. Let's read those verses together. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's God's word for us today. But back to verse 27. Let's start with this, a right conclusion. Peter gets it right. Jesus is the Christ. There are all kinds of ideas out there. Some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say one of the prophets. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Finally, again, someone gets it. Finally, someone states what we know to be true, that this is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the Christ, or the Messiah, the promised one, the son of David, the coming king, God's anointed, God's man, the answer. He's it. Now, here I could quote a number of Old Testament passages which predict and foretell of this Christ who was to come, this king that was to come. Instead, I'm going to quote from something that's not in the Bible, This is from the 1st or 2nd century B.C. This is called the Psalms of Solomon. Again, it's not in your Bible. It wasn't even written by Solomon. I don't know why it's called Psalms of Solomon. But, But this represents the kind of thinking in Judaism about the time of Jesus. This probably represents the kind of thinking that Peter was doing when he said that Jesus is the Christ. So Psalms of Solomon says, See, Lord, raise up for them their king, the son of David, the ruler over Israel. You see, Messiah. But then it goes on. Undergird him with strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. In wisdom and in righteousness, drive out the sinners from your inheritance. And smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. Shatter all their substance with an iron rod. And destroy the unlawful notions with the word of his mouth. That is, with the word of Messiah's mouth. You can hear, can't you? It's militaristic. It's nationalistic. It's it's hell-bent, you could say. It's about the sword. And it's about blood. It's about conquering. So Peter has a right conclusion. This is the Christ. But he has probably a wrong idea about what kind of Christ he is. And so secondly, there's a shocking clarification. Jesus makes a shocking clarification. The Christ must die. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Three categories of religious leaders in Jesus' day. Elders, chief priests, and scribes. They didn't get along. 
They didn't, agree, they didn't agree on much. They were constantly bickering at each other and maneuvering against each other. And yet Jesus says, they will come together. They will agree on this. They will kill me. Jesus adds shock value when he refers to himself as the son of man who will be rejected and killed. It's not just that the Christ will be killed and rejected, but the son of man. That phrase, son of man, comes from Daniel 7, where he's the one to whom God will give the nations to rule and to inherit. It couldn't be a more exalted or lofty title, this son of man. And yet, the Son of Man will be rejected and killed and by his own people and by its nation's leaders. In the U.S., we've had good and bad presidents. I don't know which ones you think are good and bad, and we won't all agree on that, will we? Which is proof that none of them have been great, right? I mean, we can't agree, even if you think you know, Kennedy was great or Reagan was great. Well, other people disagree. They must not have been that great. Let's imagine that an angel came down from heaven one day and told us that one day you will have a president that will be president par excellence. He will be the president, the one to come. He will fix it all. He will bring in a golden age in the U.S. unlike any before. He will heal all woes. He will unite our divided country he will remove the middle aisle of the Senate altogether. And so we wait. And then he comes. And we know it's him. We know this is it. This is the president, the capital T, capital P, the president. He's the one. He tells us he's the one. And we're all very excited. And yet before he takes office, he holds a press conference and he says, I will be hated by the Senate. I will be hated by the Congress and, and, and by the Supreme Court. They will kill me. In fact, they will conspire with Al-Qaeda against me, and they will win. I will be defeated. We, our country, will be defeated. Well, you turn off the TV and you go, well, he's not the one. That's not it. That's not the president par excellence that the angel told us about. So hopefully you can understand something of what Peter and the rest were thinking when Jesus said he's the Christ, the, the Son of Man, and he'll be rejected and killed. And Mark tells us he said this plainly. That's noteworthy because so far in the story, Jesus hasn't said much plainly. He's spoken in parables. He's spoken in enigmas. Parables aren't just cute or helpful illustrations of a truth. They were meant to both confound and bring some clarity. For some, it'd be confounding. And for others, it would be clarity. For, for some, the parable would be a light bulb moment. And for others, it would be a head-scratching moment. But here, this, he says, he says this plainly. We know that the disciples, or at least Peter, understood what he said. They just didn't believe it to be true. Verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. We're not told exactly what Peter said. I'd love to know. I'd love to hear what Peter said. But, but he rebuked him. That's strong enough. We know this is a very awkward moment. 
I mean, Peter's thinking, over my dead body are you going to die? I'll die before you die. I'll protect you. Maybe Peter's thinking that Jesus is just having a bad, a bad day, a pessimistic sort of day. He's in a Doug and Debbie Downer sort of mood, and he needs, a, he needs some cheering, you know, a good coach. He needs a coach to step into the locker room and say, hey, cut it out. None of that negative talk around here. Peter's way of thinking, by the way, is alive and well today. One wonders what Joel Olstein would have said to Jesus had he been standing next to Jesus when he predicted his rejection and crucifixion. Can you picture that? Let's just take some lines from Joel's book, Your Best Life Now, to see how these might have spoken to such a seemingly defeated Messiah. Maybe he would have said, You must stop dwelling on negative, destructive thoughts which keep you in a rut. You need to stay positive and believe in a better future. Your negative mindset is holding you back from doing more, from being more. Your thoughts are condemning you to mediocrity. Instead, see your business take off. See your marriage restored. See your family prospering. See your dreams coming to pass. You must believe it and see it if you ever hope to experience it. Well, Jesus clearly believed in your best life later, not your best life now. And this is in the Old Testament as well. The the Messiah described in the Old Testament, yes, would be one of glory and victory and, and conquering his enemies, but he would also be one who suffers. That was there. It wasn't there quite as prominently or clearly, but it it was there. Isaiah 53, of course, is maybe the the clearest and biggest of these passages that describe God's servant coming and suffering, even dying. Zechariah 9, it says that they will look on him who they pierced and they will mourn. Or even in Genesis 3.15, the very first announcement of the gospel, there's some hint that the seed of the woman to come will experience some suffering. But like so many in his day, Peter only sees half of the picture. He doesn't see the whole. Remember remember that man who was healed of his blindness in the story before? We saw that on Christmas Eve night. Right before Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, there's this man who's blind and Jesus heals him, touches him, but not all the way at first. Remember, he sees but he doesn't see clearly. He sees men and they're walking around like trees. They, they, they look funny. They're, he doesn't see clearly. But then Jesus touches him again and then he sees everything clearly. Remember, that's an illustration. It, it really happened. It literally happened. And, and the man was restored. It wasn't just an illustration or a story, but it was an illustration. Jesus healed the man that way in order to provide a vivid picture of what Peter was about to do. He was about to see the Christ and yet prove that his vision was still very foggy because he's against the cross. Verse 33, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Is it a bit extreme for Jesus to call him Satan? Well, no, this is not just the thoughts of man, but 
It's satanic. It's what Satan did in his temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The last of the temptations, Satan said, I will give you the kingdoms of this world if you just bow down. What he was doing is offering him a different path than the one God the Father had already planned out for him. God would give his son the nations. It's in Revelation all over. Because he died, God has given him the nations as his inheritance. And Satan was saying, here's a different path, an easier path. It's really quick. It's less painful. Just bow down before me. Don't go to the cross, and I will give you the nations. Peter's thinking like that. Can't there be an easier way? Can't we get the nation some other way? Can't we get what God has promised apart from the cross? Of course, the answer is no. There's a right conclusion, then a shocking clarification, then a radical call. A radical call. Jesus says you must die too. This is a call for would-be followers in verse 34 and following. Maybe call isn't strong enough. Maybe it's condition, if you like. The condition that Jesus places on would-be followers. He said, if anyone would come after me, that is, follow me, be my disciple, we would say today, become a Christian. Let him, or better, he must, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and there he will be crucified. These disciples are following him in his wake. And Jesus said, if you're going to keep coming, take up your cross. They would have understood the imagery. In those days, a man carried the cross beam of the cross to where he was going to be crucified. You carried your cross going to your execution. It's a, it's a cruel, humiliating thing to do, isn't it? The, the Romans were so good at this thing of a painful and humiliating execution. A man carried the very instrument by which he would be killed and before that tortured. So Jesus is saying, take up your cross and follow me. We need to understand that from a variety of different angles. Here's one angle to think about. Suffering versus salvation. The cross is both salvation and suffering for those who cling to it. You see, the cross is the means of our salvation as Christians. Jesus will say in Mark 10, I came as a ransom for many, a payment for many, a payment for your sins. There is forgiveness of sins through the cross, and that comes to us free of charge. But the cross is also a symbol for the tenor of our lives. We Christians are suffering people. We worship a suffering king. We follow him and we follow his path. No surprise that we should suffer too. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you as well. So that's one angle. Suffering versus salvation. Another would be us versus them. Us meaning us here and now, versus them in the story, like the disciples who are hearing this for the first time. 
They are deciding whether to take those next steps with Jesus after he predicted that he would be rejected and killed. We know from church history that all of the apostles died as martyrs, except only for John, and he was exiled to the island of Patmos, and there he died as an old man. But they all died. Some cruel and horrible deaths, like Peter's upside-down crucifixion. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He will be killed. They are following him right into the lion's den. So Jesus is warning them. You should expect to die too. And they did. There's also the us versus them component of them being Mark's first readers. Mark, 30 years or so after Jesus' resurrection, wrote this stuff down and disseminated it in the church. Those readers were going through suffering times, persecuted times. It may have been in the days of Nero. It may have been shortly after that, but, but it was suffering, great suffering for those who identified with Christ. We don't face that same suffering here in the 21st century in America. So there's also the here versus elsewhere angle to analyzing this part of Mark 8. Elsewhere being, say, Afghanistan or, or Saudi Arabia or Iran or North Korea. I mean, let's be honest, this passage sounds very differently in those contexts than it does here. In fact, in some ways, it's applied differently. There's literally this willingness to embrace martyrdom as part of coming to Christ. That really isn't part of the equation here, at least not yet. Which brings up this component. Literally versus figuratively. All of us should be willing to die for Christ if put in that dilemma. And some will die for Christ and for the gospel. But as we know, not all will. And yet, for those who won't die, this passage is still relevant. This call to take up your cross and follow me is still relevant, whether you're in the first century or the 21st century, whether you're here or whether you're in North Korea. You see, we all need to die to self. This passage tells us we must die to self if we come to Christ. In fact, much of the New Testament unpacks that, unfolds that whole reality in greater detail. We say to ourselves, don't we? From 1 Corinthians 6, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm his. Romans 12 tells us that we're to lay our lives down as a living sacrifice. That's a dead thing, right? A living sacrifice. A sacrifice is something that's killed. According to Romans 6, we were slaves to sin and now we've been made free. But on the other hand, we've also been made slaves to righteousness. Romans 6 also said that we were buried with him in baptism into his death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. Or Galatians 2 I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this is true of any Christian, whether they die a martyr's death or not. 
We could ask ourselves, what did it cost me to become a Christian? What's the answer there? Well, probably you're thinking of two things, aren't you? On the one hand, it costs nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. It costs nothing. It's all of grace. And yet it costs everything. Everything. You say everything. No, it didn't. Maybe some things. No, no, no. This is realm transfer. This is whole being change. This cost us everything. 2 Corinthians 5 says that Christians no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christianity is costly. My wife and I occasionally remind each other that we could lease a Ferrari or buy a second home if we didn't give to the church. I don't bring that up to pat ourselves on the back. We don't remind each other of that occasionally to pat ourselves on the back. But we bring it up so that we don't forget that however little the sacrifice, comparatively speaking, however comfortable our home is, we do actually sacrifice. We are trying to live differently than the world. It's a small reminder that we are not our own. Money is harder when you're a Christian. It should be. Marriage is harder when you're a Christian. Oh, I know, in some ways it's easier. You, you go God's path and there's more harmony in the home and, right, love's exchanged. It's, it's good. In some ways it's easier, but in many ways marriage is harder when you're a Christian. More is at stake. There's no easy way out. We have more to do in our marriage than the world has to do in theirs. Our parenting is harder. Again, in some ways, Christian parenting is easier. In other ways, it's harder. The assignment list that God has given Christian parents is longer than the one that the world gives parents. We Christians have to fight against sin. We have to wrestle with our guilt. We have to repent. We have to receive correction. We have to pursue, pursue righteousness. We have to serve each other. We have to serve in ways that we would want to be served. We have to live life out together, whether we like it or not, when it's easy and when it's hard. Weekends are different for Christians. At least they should be. Here's one more angle to Jesus' call to follow him and take up our cross. Radical versus ordinary. You see, there's no way around it. Jesus' call is worded in radical terms. Take up your cross. Carry the instrument of your execution to your execution. That's radical. And so for some, it will look radical. It will look like going to a mission field where there's the real threat of death for Christ. And yet for others, this will look more ordinary than that. It will look like a J-O-B, working nine to five, putting in the hours, doing math or something, or inventing this, or typing that, or, or cleaning up this, or, or making this food. Mundane stuff, right? 
God hasn't called us all to go to North Africa or Saudi Arabia. He hasn't called us all to be martyrs. And yet, even in these ordinary callings, there can be a radical way in which we think about them and pursue them. There's a radical way to be an ordinary guy or ordinary gal, to be an ordinary Christian. I wish I could say more about that, but we'll move on. Now we move on to some rationale. Verses 35 to 38, Jesus gives the rationale for this call to take up one's cross and follow him. It's a fourfold rationale. In fact, you can easily see, as you look down in your Bibles, that these are rationale, since each one of them begins with the word for. You see? Verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Now, I don't know about you, but these are familiar words to me. I realized this week that even as a preacher, because I'm familiar with these words and because I think I know what these verses mean, these sayings like this mean, it's been a long time since I've slowed down over these verses and let them marinate in my soul and and convict me afresh. So we're going to gaze at each one of these, one by one, these four rationale. The first rationale, verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus is making a play on words here. Those who save life, that is physical life, temporary life, will lose life, that is spiritual life, and eternal life. Those who are willing to lose life, lose physical life, lose life as the world defines it, they will, in the end, Save their life, that is, eternal and spiritual life. In other words, to embrace Christ and to go his way is to abandon unbridled self. Self-promotion, self-direction, self-fulfillment. It doesn't mean that those are completely absent in every Christian. It means instead we've abandoned the focused pursuit of these things, the unrestrained pursuit of self like we were born pursuing. You see, whether we're talking about self-promotion or self-fulfillment or just status or honor or achievement or image or being a somebody, these are all efforts to save life to make a life for ourselves. And we Christians are losing that life because Christ is all. The mindset of the world, which many Christians struggle to shed or even recognize as antithetical to Christ, the mindset of the world is that life is a game and there's winning and, and there's losing. There are winners and there are losers. Charlie Sheen was famous a while back, or infamous, I guess, for his rant about how he was winning. Did you see that? He was interviewed and kept talking about his accomplishments, and he was just winning, kept saying it like he was crazy. Winning, winning, I'm winning. And most of us rolled our eyes at Charlie Sheen. But why? 
Isn't it because he didn't really seem to be winning after all? Strung out on drugs and fired from a TV show? He wasn't winning, and so we roll our eyes. Or, or maybe we roll our eyes because those who really are winning don't talk like that. They don't say that they're winning. But how many of us really heard that, that speech and that mantra of winning and rolled our eyes because we truly operate out of a totally different economy of life? That we operate by different math, different science than that of Charlie Sheen. I think most of us, whether we want to admit it or not, like to think of life in terms of winning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lost, you could say. He was executed by the Nazis at 39 years old. He wrote this. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ. In union with his death, we give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Martin Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. So there's the first rationale. Here's the second, verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The comedian Stephen Wright says, you can't have everything, where would you put it? It's funny, isn't it? You can't have everything, where would you put it? Well, Jesus taps into the same absurdity when he paints a picture of a man who has gained the whole world. That's never happened before. No one can do that. That will not ever happen. But just imagine it. A guy has it all. He gained the whole world. A man who has everything but dies without Christ dies with nothing. Worse than dying with nothing, he forfeits his soul. Jesus once told the story of a man who had so much that he had to keep building bigger and bigger barns. And Jesus said that this man congratulated himself one day on all his winning. He said to himself, you have ample goods laid up for many, many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich Toward God. What if you could have everything, everything you've ever wanted, not just possessions, but the ideal life, the ideal looks, 
the ideal kids, the ideal dog, ideal everything, your favorite everything. You could have all the accomplishments and accolades you've ever dreamed of, and you could have it right now. But there's just one catch. You die tonight. Would you take that deal? Everything you'd ever want, and you'd die tonight. Well, you wouldn't take that deal. No one would unless they had suicidal tendencies, right? No. It's too short of a time span. It's too short to enjoy all that pleasure. But here's the thing. The longest life is too short compared with eternity to define who we are and to dictate what we do. A man who has the whole world but doesn't have Christ has nothing and even less than nothing. But the man who has nothing, the man who loses everything, the man who has nobody, who dies with nobody in nothing, if he has Christ, when he dies, he has everything. Do you believe that? I mean, it's so otherworldly. We just have to keep saying it to ourselves over and over again. We need to reread the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Remember that? Here's this poor, leprous, hungry beggar in front of a rich man's house. The rich man, he, he, he banquets every single, single meal. And both die. And poor old Lazarus is taken by angels to Abraham's side in heaven. The rich man was taken to hell and was tormented. And he was in such anguish that he was desperate for a drop of water on his tongue. He thought that would relieve some of the suffering, just to have a drop of water upon his tongue. And yet the drop of water was out of his reach. He couldn't bargain even for a single drop. Paul wrote to Timothy, Demas has deserted me having loved this present world. He probably deserted the Lord. He deserted the Lord and Paul having loved this present world. But why not love this present world if this is all that is? If now is all we got? But it isn't all we got. Christ is raised from the dead. If he wasn't raised from the dead, we'd be fools. This is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. We'd be fools to preach and live like we do if Christ isn't raised from the dead. We should be pitied because we're a laughingstock to live like we do and talk like we do and believe like we do if when we die, we just die. But Christ is raised from the dead and so we live differently. Romans 8, there Paul puts it like this, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Which leads to a third rationale. Verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? In other words, what kind of price tag would you put on a soul? Not a life, not a body. Not a long life or a good life, but a soul. I mean, first just remember that you have a soul. You are a soul. You're not just a body. You're not just a bunch of reactions. There's an 
eternal self and an internal self in there. And you will live on even after you die. That soul is precious. It's priceless. And yet we shouldn't think of all this just in terms of heaven and hell or this life and the next. Living for later doesn't mean that we don't live now. Losing self for Christ doesn't mean we lose everything and we simply wait for the next life. In fact, no, we gain Christ. Christ is our life. We live life more fully in him and through him. C.S. Lewis put it like this at the end of his famous book, Mere Christianity. This is how he ended his book. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day. And the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be yours really. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself And you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Or as Jim Elliott put it, that missionary who died at the hands of the Alka Indians that he was seeking to reach, they killed him when he was 29 years old. He famously said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Amen. There's a fourth rationale, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here's another reason why you can take up your cross and follow him. He's coming back. He won't be ashamed of those who are not ashamed of him. Let me offer an an illustration that's admittedly bad and absurd. Perhaps a little shocking. Imagine going to a 10-year class reunion or a 20-year class reunion. You're there with your wife and at some point eventually you're mingling separately and an old friend comes and finds you and you begin to catch up and chat and he says, is that your wife over there? You go, her? <laughs> no. No, my wife's way hotter than that. My wife's a model. She's in Paris right now doing a shoot. You should see her. And then your real wife turns around. She heard you. You were ashamed of her. She's now ashamed of you. I know that's absurd, but so it is when Christ is denied. He's our husband. We're married to him if we're his. If he's denied, he hears it. Now, this verse here, verse 38, isn't a one and done kind of thing, one and done rule, like like you do it once and you deny him once or deny being a Christian once and, and surely you aren't one then. No, remember that Peter denied the Lord three times and he wept bitterly, he repented, and he was restored. 
Nevertheless, it's true that those who are marked by denial of the Lord, those who are routinely ashamed of Christ or his words, well, you can't do that and truly be his. When he returns in glory with the holy angels with him, he will be ashamed of you. You who did not stand for him in this sinful generation, he will not stand for you at the judgment. And yet the reverse is also true. Jesus said in Matthew 10, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Jesus at the gates of heaven saying, this one's with me. I know that one. This one's with me. Have you identified with Christ in this way? Have you cast your lot with him? Has his cross been to you both the means of your salvation and also the mark of your life? Not perfectly so, but genuinely so. We pray you would know the forgiveness that is in Christ. We pray you would know what the cross means and you would go his way. Lastly, there's a promise here. Chapter 9, verse 1, I think it's really part of the same passage. Chapter 9, verse 1, there's a promise after these rationales. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, this is one of the more confusing things that Jesus ever said. Hence, there are a number of different interpretations. Some think that he's referring to the transfiguration, which actually happens next in the story. So that, okay, it happens next in the story. Maybe he's referring to that. But it happens six days later. Why did he say, some are standing here who won't die before they see the glory and the power of the kingdom? Some think that Jesus is referring in chapter 9, verse 1, to the second coming. When he comes again in power and glory, you'll see the kingdom. But then why did he say there are some standing here who won't die? Surely they all died by now. Some think that this is referring to the power that comes upon those first disciples in Acts chapter 2, where then they'll be his witnesses. And it might be. But some think, and I... I agree with this, this is my understanding as well, is that Jesus is referring to the cross and resurrection. That is what they will see. They will see the kingdom coming in power. After the resurrection, of course, you get how the resurrection could communicate the kingdom is here and the power has come. What about the cross, though? How is that power? Well, there's a lot of power. Yes, it's death and suffering. It looks weak as well, but think about it. At the cross, that scene, the heavens are torn open, we're told. The sky goes black. The earth quakes. It comes with power. And after the resurrection as well, it's all the more clear. The kingdom has come, and it has come in glorious, life-giving power. So this is a promise for them. They're going with Jesus And they must take up their cross to go with Jesus. 
Jesus gives them four rationale, which both serve as warning and hope. And then he also adds to it this promise. The kingdom is about here. It's coming. It will come before you die. You will see it. And it will come with power. For us, Christian, we can look back and say the kingdom has come. It's not just promise. It's already happened. The kingdom of God has come in power in Jesus' death and resurrection. So now we know what Jesus was teaching to be true. By virtue of the death and resurrection, we know that, that winning comes by losing. And salvation comes through sacrifice. And life comes through death. And victory through defeat or seeming defeat. We follow him. We walk in his path. We go his way no matter what. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let's pray. I'm going to pray a prayer from the book Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers. I'll read the first prayer in the book, the one from which the book is named, The Valley of Vision. Let this be our prayer as we close. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Let me find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. May it be so, Lord Jesus, for your sake. Amen.